Good morning. How is everybody this morning? As my brother Jerome said, I am I'm Troy Zink. Um, some of you probably better know me as Jacqueline's husband, Maze's father, or Micah's father. That's typically, typically how it works. Um, we just moved back to the area. My wife is, is from Bloomfield, um, so we just recently moved back and been attending CCPC here for a few months. Um, so it's, it's been a privilege to be uh, with you all, worshiping with you all, and I'm grateful for the opportunity to, to bring the word to you all this morning. Now, as a day job, I'm a high school science teacher, um, but I just recently finished up getting my master's in biblical studies from Reformed Theological Seminary. So I don't know if there's been more pressure on me than uh, Friday night. If you all watch Jeopardy, you know the final Jeopardy category was science in the Bible. And my wife looked at me and said, now we're going to see if both your job and your education have paid off. So fortunately, I got the question right. But um, let's, let's get started this morning. And we'll be in Acts chapter, Acts chapter 16. And you can see it printed in your bulletin. Uh, we're not going to read the, the entire passage. Uh, as, as I was praying through and working through this, uh, you have to make decisions, right? There's so much good stuff here. We can't talk about everything. We can't preach about everything. So you, so you pray through, what, what does God want me to talk about this morning? What particular part of this passage do we all need this morning? And I kind of landed on, on a place of encouragement. And, and I tell this to my students, too, and so I'm, I'm grateful for some feedback there. Uh, naturally, I'm an introvert. I like my quiet time. I like going for a run by myself. But when I teach or when I preach, talk to me. Tell me you're here. I want to hear you. So um, it makes it, I think, better for, for everybody, myself included. So let's look at Acts chapter 16. We will start in actually verse 13. Um, read 13. And, and then we'll, I'll, I'll tell you when we kind of jump down. But the whole passage is printed in your bulletin for context. So if you want to look, just to fact check me, it's, it's there for you. So Acts chapter 16, verse 13. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, and who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her a heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized in her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Let me skip down to verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for the lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. 
Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them that same hour of the night and washed their wounds. Amen. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. And then he brought them into his house and set food before them and rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. And then verse 40, the very end. So they went out of prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, I have one prayer but this morning, and that is that we encounter you. We meet you. Lord, may I decrease so that you can increase. Lord, may your spirit fill this place. And may we walk out of here encouraged, strengthened for whatever journey lie before us. Amen. I remember when we had our older daughter, Maze. Um, I was excited to take on the role of dad. as our first child. I was excited for that opportunity. I had tried to prepare myself for all that I could prepare, right? The sleepless nights, the diaper changes, all of that. But there's one thing I didn't expect, and that those first few weeks were incredibly hard for me. I thought I was going to feel this overwhelming connection, this overwhelming sense of love for Maze. And, and it, didn't, it didn't feel like I expected it to. That is until Maze was about two or three weeks old. It was one night, Jackie was incredibly tired. I said, I'll take Maze. I'll sleep with her on the couch so you can just sleep. And then when she needs to nurse, I'll bring her in. So she slept on me on the couch. It was about 3 a.m. She wakes up because she's hungry. So I'm going into the bedroom to take her in. And in the darkness, I trip. And so I'm tripping and falling in the bedroom. Jackie's a little bit disoriented, like, what's going on? And I... I'm stumbling and falling over, and like Rafiki holding up Simba and the Lion King, I hold her up, and I crash into her pack-and-play. So any of you used our pack-and-play at our house, it's broken, and that's why. It doesn't have all the pieces. But Maze was unharmed. She wasn't her. She was crying. She was scared. But the pack-and-play was broken. I had bruises all over myself. But in that moment, I experienced what I was longing for to know what it was like to be a father. And I'm still trying to figure it all out. And I'll still always try to be figuring it all out. But I think that was an important lesson for me. And as we look at Acts chapter 16 today, we see people working out experientially what it means to be a follower of Christ. Right? They're figuring it out, what the redemptive work of the Spirit means for their lives individually, familially, and familially including family that's not really family, but it's really family, and those around them on a day-to-day basis. So this is what we're going to spend our time looking at today. How do the characters of Acts 16, and how do we practically work out our salvation according to the Spirit's supernatural work? How do we practically work out our salvation according to the Spirit's supernatural work? And I think 
there's, there's three kind of repeated things that start each story, and we see this in verse 13, verse 16, and verse 25. So one of the primary ways we participate in the supernatural work of the Spirit is through prayer. Prayer is that constant theme. In verse 13, we see that Paul and Silas are going to the place of prayer before they meet Lydia. In verse 16, we see that Paul and Silas are going again to the place of prayer before they have an encounter with this woman, this girl who's possessed, and they uh, cleanse of the demon, and then they're beaten, arrested, and thrown in jail. And then in verse 25, when they're locked up in prison, we see them praying and singing. The role of prayer is highlighted for a reason. It was integral to what they were doing, their mission. Oftentimes, I think we think of prayer as passivity, but it's powerful action. Right? It's a powerful testimony to our belief that the Spirit is alive and working, not only in ourselves, but in those around us. And prayer prepares them to perceive the Spirit's work. The experience of the Christian life is one defined by prayer. Romans tells us that the Spirit intercedes for us with words too deep for understanding. And then in Philippians, Paul tells us to pray without ceasing. Right In everything, by prayer and supplication, make your, with thanksgiving, make your requests known to God. And the peace of God. That surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. But we don't pray for answers to our questions. We pray for God's answers and God's guidance to his plan. Sometimes the best prayer is just to pray, God, change my prayer. Help me to be praying the right things. Guide my heart to the right things. Change my questions. Change my eyesight. Help me to know you. Help me to see you. Help me to be near you. Help me to walk with you wherever we go, wherever you go. But prayer is just not personal, right? In these passages, they're going to the place of prayer in verses 13 and 16. And in verse 25, Right? Paul and Silas are praying and singing together, and there's actually an audience. The other prisoners are listening to them. There's only one person that's sleeping, and that's the jailer who we'll get to. But the place of prayer demonstrates the high value that was placed on it by the Jews during that time. Right? It took a central role. Jesus himself calls the temple the house of prayer. When Paul and Silas... Um, pray, they do it in community. And, and there's a sense in which praying together binds us together, right? It is the spirit that unites us. And, and when we pray together, we, we feel a unity. Last summer, um, I took a, a course called The Theology and Mission, a prayer by Car- Carol, Karen and Carl Ellis, excuse me, um, a class I highly recommend it is an excellent class um, and really felt connected to people. And I was excited 
after leaving that class to apply what I had learned, right? They gave me some, some structure, some, some ways to think about prayer, motivations, all of that. It was excellent. So excited to apply what I had learned. Um, later on that summer, my wife and, and kids and I, we, we met with an old friend of mine, his wife and his kids, who I met when I, when I lived overseas. And each evening we had this time of prayer. And so first night I was like, all right, let me, let me apply what I had learned. And about halfway through that first prayer session, I learned I was a little kid bringing a huffy bike with training wheels to people who were in the Tour de France. The problem wasn't the bike, right? It was me. I hadn't prepared. I wasn't trained. I did not have the stamina that these other people did. My friend, his wife, my wife, they knew how to pray, right? I grew up right, my, in a Christian home. Nothing wrong with the prayer that I grew up with. And I would say that's praying, right? That was praying. But this, this was prayer, right? And, and I think we know the difference, right? Between the action and the feeling of, no, th- this is real. Right? I think I, I recall, you know, the, the time in, in the Gospels, you know, Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? And he asked his disciples to pray with him and they couldn't last. They, they fell asleep. And I, th- I think sometimes myself, I'm just so weak in prayer. And Jesus inviting us in, pray with me, labor with me in, in prayer. And the work of the Spirit is mysterious and, and also definitive in this way. I don't know um, if you can recall a time in your life when, man, you were just going through it. Man, it was rough. It was hard. And out of nowhere, you got a phone call or a text, and somebody was like, man, God just laid on my heart to pray for you, or to reach out to you and just check in, how are you doing? Right? We know what was going on. The Holy Spirit was moving that person to check on you. And things may not have gotten better, but you felt encouraged. You felt supported. You felt strengthened for whatever trial you were facing. Last, last week, we were in our old neighborhood in D.C., and, and one of the days we visited our, uh, an older couple who was a neighbor who lived across the street from us. Good, godly couple, and, and we went over there and just shared some time with them. And, and after that time of fellowship with them, I, I came back and I looked at my girls and said, Girls, you, you probably don't appreciate this now, but to have older saints pray for you is a gracious gift of God. You want your life to be changed, have an older saint pray for you. They will go to war in prayer for you. They will fight battles you don't even know about this side of glory for you. And while, again, things might not straighten out right away, the strength and encouragement that come from the prayers of people who've gone before you are unquestionably powerful. The Spirit moves and works in in those prayers in a way far beyond we can ever ask or imagine. And it encourages us in our work. Well, the work for Paul and Silas meant going to Philippi, a major city in Macedonia, a Roman colony 
according to verse 12. And in verses 6 through 10, which we didn't read, but you can see the Paul and Silas are trying to go to these different cities in Western Asia, and the Spirit keeps stopping them and prevents them from going until Paul gets a vision of a man calling for help, come to Macedonia. And so they go. And then we see two conversion stories here. We see the Philippian jailer converted, and we see Lydia converted. right? And this goes back. To, to what we read earlier in the liturgy, right? Anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And that's evidenced and plays out in these two stories. So let's first talk about um, Lydia. So in verse 14, right, God opens Lydia's heart to be saved, right? Right? And sorry, we'll go to the Philippian jailer as well. The earthquake brings him to his knees, contemplating suicide. And Paul calls out and says, no, nah, we're all here. And he said, what must I do to be saved? And Paul tells him to, to believe. We can't even work out what it means to live out our salvation if we are not at first saved. Right? We need that redemptive work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, first and foremost. And yes, there is a point at which right, we go from death to life, dead in our sins to alive in Christ, but we never lose the need of the Spirit. He leads us, He guides us every step of the way. We remain alive in the Spirit. And then we see both for Lydia and the Philippian jailer, after this internal conversion through the supernatural work of the Spirit, right? Remember, the jailer was sleeping, right? It says he awoke when the earthquake happened. He wasn't listening to Paul and Silas, right? It wasn't necessarily their words, but the power of the Spirit that woke him up not only physically, but spiritually. And we see Lydia already has kind of this introduction to following Christ. It says she's a worshiper of God. Right? God's already working on her heart. Right? So we see kind of both and. We don't, it's not just, right, this all of a sudden snap of the fingers conversion. That's with the Philippian jailer. Lydia is this kind of progressive, right? Slowly coming to know and love Christ. And as a genuine sign of their conversion, both Lydia and the Philippian jailer go where first? Their homes. Their homes. The toughest and best place to live out your faith <laughs> is your homes. Because the people know you so well. They know everything about you. They know all the flaws, all the sin, and we are called to live it out at home. There is no better and more difficult place to live out the, the Spirit's supernatural work. And it's why Paul says, when he writes his, his kind of leadership qualifications for anybody in the church, is that they do that at home, right? The first place they do it is at home. 
I had a, I had a group of friends in, in high school, and one of my friends had immigrated from, from Switzerland. So when we graduated high school, there were five of us, who went back, to, went to Switzerland with him, staying with his family, his friends, all of that. I mean, we made the chip, trip as cheap as possible. But we had places to stay, and we had a translator. So we were good to go. And one time, we, we wanted to take a hike through the Alps. And so we, we packed our bags. We were ready for the journey. There, there's little cabins up there you can stay in and just leave a little donation. They got food in these things. It's, it's beautiful. So stayed up one night, Saturday night. Sunday, we're, we're hiking. We knew where we were going. We had a city we were, we were walking to. And that's, it was Sunday afternoon, like Sunday afternoon, right? Things get a little quieter at the parks. Everybody got to go back to work on Monday. And similar there. And later in the day, we hadn't seen anybody in a while. We're kind of running low on water. And we're ready to get to our place. Somebody comes from the other direction, kind of like running down the mountain. And uh, he stops us and we say hi. He said, where are you going? And we tell him. He says, you can't go that way. With all the snow, it's just covered in ice. And unless you're an experienced climber and you have ice clips on your shoes, you're going to slip and fall hundreds of feet. So we're like, all right, we're, we're not going to risk it. We're not, we're not foolish. But what do we do now? And the guy says, follow me. Come with me down the mountain. I'll take you to the train station and get wherever you need to go. So this man literally, like, sprinted down the mountain. He encouraged, he was kind, he was encouraging us, but he was sprinting down the mountain. And we were trying to keep up with him. And he's telling us on the journey, this is the first time he's been hiking in a year. Because the last time he was hiking, he was out there by himself, broke both of his legs, and crawled for 12 hours off the mountain because his phone didn't work. Sometimes God puts people in our lives who have been there before to prevent you from doing something. Not only do they prevent you from going on the wrong path, but they're there to put you on the right path. Right? We know what that experience would have been like, or can at least imagine a little bit how painful it would have been to have both of our legs broken trying to crawl off a mountain. Clearly, we didn't want to go through that. But it was a lesson for us, too. And the man took us down, and he took us to the train station. We got where we needed to go. And we were grateful. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus talks about the narrow road that few find. It's one that transcends all other paths, all other ways. And that's the transcendent path followed by Lydia and the Philippian jailer. And it's a transcendent path that not only cuts across culture, it cuts across the religiosity that we see here, too. Consider Lydia for a moment. She's likely a single woman, which had its own kind of beliefs about it at that time. She's an entrepreneur. She's a dealer in purple goods, which connotes some wealth. And by the fact that the scripture says they go home to her household, seems like she's the head of her household. And that may make some of us even today uncomfortable. All of those things. A single female entrepreneur, head of her house. In that context, in our context, 
can make us uncomfortable. Can. But that's who the Spirit goes to first in that city. The Spirit goes first to a lady's Bible study and picks Lydia, a worshiper of God. Praise God for the faithful women across the world and in this congregation. Praise God for the faithful mothers. Praise God for the faithful grandmothers, the faithful aunties, the faithful cousins. God is using you in mighty ways. Praise God for the faithful sisters, the faithful friends. Lydia bucks a lot of cultural and religious trends. And as she works out her salvation, she immediately shows hospitality to Paul and Silas. She urges them, come stay with me. And we can see the uncomfortableness a little bit because Paul and Silas have to be persuaded. She prevails among, uh, among them to have them come to her house. We don't really see that elsewhere where Paul and, and Silas are prevailed upon like that. I get this picture in my head of going to the home of a strong matriarch. Matriarch, I don't know what you call the strong matriarch in your family. But you go to her house and you sit down for a meal. And you know the situation. You do not decide how much you eat. She decides how much you eat and what you'll eat. You can say, no, no, I, I'm good, I'm full, I've had my fill. But there's no denying her request. She prevails. Right? And, and this is what Lydia does with Paul and Silas. But what about the jailer? I mean, I've, I personally have never worked in a prison, never been a, a jailer. So I cannot speak at all from experience. But I imagine there's a certain level of toughness and coldness that can prevail. But if we look at the Philippian jailer, we see him immediately practice his newfound belief. He goes from the precipice of suicide to seeking salvation. He goes from his lowest point, willing to take his own life, to showing compassion on Paul and Silas. I think from our perspective, we see Paul and Silas from our eyes. They're good guys. They're just trying to spread the gospel. He is the jailer charged to protect them. These are criminals that he has been charged to put in the central cell and lock up. And now he is saying, come to my home, eat at my table with my family, and let me take care of your wounds. And we see that it goes home, right? Verse 32, right? The household believes, verse 33, right? The the household, excuse me, the household believes all in his house, and, and they were all baptized, and then they all rejoice. Right? The jailer shows compassion to his own house and to Paul and, and, and Silas. And there's actually a similar story in the Old Testament. In the book of Jeremiah, right? Jeremiah is a prophet speaking against. Jerusalem, and at that time, King Zedekiah 
they're about to, to kind of end. Uh, Jerusalem's kind of ending all together. Babylon's going to conquer it. And, and Jeremiah's still speaking out against them, not making many friends. And so at one point, the, the other officials throw Jeremiah into a cistern, right? Basically a death sentence because he was sinking in the mud. They were in drought. And there's an Ethiopian eunuch in the king's court, in King Zedekiah's court, called Ebed-Melech. And he comes, and he gets cloth, and he gets rope, and he puts the cloth around the rope so that when he lifts up Jeremiah out of the cistern, he does this at night, he takes men with him to do this for safety, for security, and, and as compassionately as he can with these claws so the rope doesn't cut or or tear into Jeremiah's skin, he lifts him out. Now, Jeremiah isn't immediately freed from, from prison, but we see Ebed-Melech show compassion, unusual compassion that no other official showed. And God rewards Ebed-Melech and tells him later, well, everybody else, King Zedekiah and his whole family included, and all these officials will be wiped out and slaughtered by Nebuchadnezzar, you will be saved. You will have an inheritance with Jeremiah. We actually don't know what the Philippian jailer's name is. That never tells us. Ebed-Melech means servant of the king. You can read tons of commentaries. They can't tell you if that's his actual name or just his title. Sometimes the compassionate job is the thankless job. It's the unnamed job. But we know who Ebed-Melech's king was. And sometimes we need to remind ourselves who our king is. Who we are actually serving. Who we are actually ministering to. Right? If we're committing ourselves to this work of compassion, this work of encouragement, this work of love, it will be thankless. There will not be gratitude. It's work that doesn't always get recognized. And that's hard sometimes because our flesh wants that. And that's pretty much true for everybody, however you like to be recognized. Maya Angelou's quote rings with a spiritual truth here when she says, um, I've learned that people will forget what you said, people will forget what you did, but they will never forget how you made them feel. And in the moment that Paul reaches across the aisle to the Philippian jailer who was about to kill himself, he felt the presence of the Spirit, which is why he says, what must I do to be saved? All right, and I know the pushback is we can't trust our feelings. And there's some truth to that. But if we are to live and love and the power of the Holy Spirit, we must make sure that people know they are image bearers of a holy God. And that each of us, whether we recognize it or or not, or others, whether they recognize it or not, bear the image of God and have a unique dignity, identity, and significance that is God-given. We do not give people dignity. They have dignity. Our job is to encourage them to see that in Christ. The way we treat each other can never waver. We may disagree on a whole lot, but the way we treat each other cannot be compromised. 
I work with a lot of high schoolers, obviously, as a high school science teacher for a little over a decade. And um, you had the pressure for them to craft an image that presents perfection or having it all together is unbearable. Last school year, I had a, a high school senior taking chemistry. This school, seniors took chemistry. And we were doing a lesson on Bunsen burners. I was teaching them how to light a Bunsen burner. We didn't have the normal flint strikers you use, so I had to teach them to use matches. And pretty much none of the kids had ever used matches, which was shocking to me, but why would they ever have to use matches? Right? So that turned into a whole lesson of its own. There was one student in particular I'll never forget. She was trying to light the match, just couldn't get it, trying, trying. Just keep trying. I showed them, like, these science desks are made to be lit on fire. They're okay. I'll light it on fire in front of you, and you will see the desk will not burn. And she kept doing it. She finally gets the match lit, and it startles her so much, she throws the match. <laughs> and she was like, <sighs> and I, I wasn't thinking. I was like, all right, here, here's the matchbox again. And she looked at me, and she goes, I don't know if anybody's ever in, in my high school career watched me fail that badly and trusted me to do it again. And I was convicted by how many times I just write off people. And I said, nope, you burned me once, I'm done with you. Right, how many students, how many people, how many friends, man, you you burned me, I'm done. And all the lack of compassion I've shown. It was a reminder for myself what it feels like to somebody see my flaws and say, no, you're good, I got you. My hope is that if you have put your faith and trust in Christ, you know the Spirit is saying to you, you're good, I got you. I got you. Right? We know what the Scripture says, that God is faithful and just. We prayed for justice this morning. God is just to forgive us if we confess our sins. Right? He is there with the power of the Spirit to say, you're good. I got you. I got you at Calvary. And you never have to worry about being snatched from my hand. There'll be mountains. There'll be battles. Paul and Silas, we see in this passage, was beaten and imprisoned falsely, unjustly. But they remain faithful through the trials. And I know from the people sitting here today and people in congregations all across the world that the greatest testimony of the Spirit is that they're still here. They still believe when they have no other reason to. Sometimes that is the greatest testimony of the Holy Spirit, that I am still here by the grace of God. Because the Lord knows I've messed it up all kinds of ways. But the Lord has kept me. The Lord has kept my family. I hope we see in this passage how, how for both Lydia and the Philippian jail, it starts internally. 
It, it, it extends familially, and it extends kind of culturally in, in the social sphere. Man, I want to invite you, if you do not know that God has got you today, like we talked earlier in the liturgy, like this passage says, what must I do to believe? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Ask for the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit to open your heart to be changed. He'll do it. Won't he do it? Somebody testify it. Won't he do it? Maybe you just need encouragement and how to pray or to live faithfully in your home and in the community, and I think we all need that. How do we be faithful witnesses to the glory of God, to the ends of the earth? Maybe we just need God to give us eyes to see or ears to hear who that person is that we kind of need to welcome in to our homes, to our lives, who we ought to love, who we ought to pray for, who we ought to show compassion for. May God give you sight in this season. May God give you ears to hear in this season. May God open your heart to love in this season. May God open your lives and my life to what the Spirit is doing in our own lives, in the lives of our family, in the lives of those around us. I know there's singers out here. I'm not a singer, unfortunately. I wish I were. I wish. But I'm going to let James Cleveland bring us home. Scripture doesn't promise that the road will be easy. But we also know he didn't bring us this far to leave us. But by the power of the Spirit, he picked us up and he turned us around. But by the power of the Spirit, he healed you and told you to run. By the power of the Spirit, can nobody do you like Jesus? By the power of the Spirit, he's your friend. Let's pray.